along with that, Linda Davis up in Michigan uh, sent word that she has a serious health problem and requests prayer for this problem. She doesn't go into details on it, but Linda's had various health issues for quite some years and uh, is facing a difficulty there. So let's all be sure and keep Linda in mind. Well, tomorrow is the Feast of Trumpets. I couldn't get it all said right last week trying to announce it, but uh, now since it's just tomorrow, I guess I I can get it right. (laughs) Not everyone agrees with that, however it appears around here. Uh, We had people who are apparently keeping uh, Feast of Trumpets and then Day of Atonement completely out of sequence with either the new moon or the full moon. I don't know where they're getting that. But uh, they've been observed meeting together, apparently on Feast of Trumpets, uh, what I consider way early, and then this Thursday for atonement, it looked like. Well, I guess we'll find out if they start the feast on Tuesday, uh, what it is they're doing. But uh, I have heard in the past and seen papers where some people have tried to prove that the full moon is the new moon. Uh, which I went through, and I think it's very clear that the new moon is the beginning when it is new after going away. Uh, but there are some who think that the, the full moon is the new moon, and I thought, well, maybe they'd adopted that, and then I checked the dates that they're meeting on, and they're out of sync with either the full or the new moon. So I don't know. One other theory I've heard from uh, some somewhere over the years was that you don't use the moon and the sun at all to calculate the calendar, but you go by the constellations and the movement of the constellations. Uh, Bullinger wrote a book called God's Witness in the Stars, which does show apparently the sequence of the holy days throughout the year. <clears throat> but if you go back and read Genesis 1.14 very carefully, well, in fact, I'll even do that while we're sitting here. It doesn't say to use the stars for the calendar. Genesis 1.14, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. So the issue here is day and night. And let them be for signs and for seasons, or moeds, or holy days, and for days and years. So you count the days and the years from the two lights that were made to separate day and night. Those are the two lights you use. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And he said just above that those are the ones that are to be used to uh, for as signs, as Moeds or holy days, and for days and for years. So the sun and the moon determine, starting uh, at the lowest denominator, the day. And he made the stars also. So the sun and the moon up there clearly are shown to be the key to keeping time. And he also made the stars. But that is an afterthought added on after he makes it clear that the sun and the moon were to be what are used to uh, 
keep track of time. So, I do not know what new theory somebody may have come up with, but I've got a real strong feeling that it's probably quite wrong. I can't answer a question before I hear it, obviously, but uh, you read Genesis and you read other places in the Bible, and it's clearly the new, the new moon. And uh, there are other things that uh, help you understand how the heavens work. So anyway, uh, people do begin to get off. That's just the way it happens when you get away from that which God has ordained and set up. And even that which He ordained and has set up, sometimes people go astray from. So, uh, I don't know, we'll see where that all goes, but I'm only going on what has apparently happened, uh, so I don't want to start any false rumors. It's just... Uh, that appears to be when they're keeping those days, and maybe I'm wrong, I don't know, but uh, we shall see. Anyway, tomorrow, I do believe, is truly God's Feast of Trumpets. That's where I started getting off the track here a little bit and commenting, because everybody doesn't agree with that. The Jews think it's uh, Monday, because in the fall they can't have a Sabbath back-to-back. They don't believe in having a Sabbath back-to-back at all, but uh, there aren't enough days uh, that they can prevent it in the springtime. They would like to, but they can't. So if they adjust it so they don't have back-to-back in the spring some years, then they do have them back-to-back in the fall, and for some reason they chose to go ahead and have back-to-back in the spring if it was necessary in order to divide them in the fall. Well, it's just weird, uh, but the Jews are weird. Uh, Paul said they were weird. That wasn't the exact word he used, but uh, Christ used some words too. He didn't say weird, but he said snakes, reptiles, unwashed uh, sepulchers, and, or unwashed cups and filthy sepulchers. So that's Christ's assessment of the Jews' religion. Uh, and Paul backed it up by saying they have no advantage other than Uh, what they were given, and they misused and abused it. So, uh, the Jews are off a day, and so are the churches of God who follow the Jews. So, tomorrow, Feast of Trumpets, a very important and inspiring day. And then this coming Tuesday uh, is the fast of the seventh month. Now, that's the day that Gedaliah, who was the appointed leader of Israel, those who were left behind in Jerusalem and Nebuchadnezzar, uh, took the Jews overseas from Jerusalem here uh, to the Babylon and the Middle East. Uh, There were some left behind, and Nebuchadnezzar appointed Gedaliah as the governor of them, uh, knowing they would need some organization. So, it is the day that Gedaliah was killed. I think it was Edomites, wasn't it? Or was it... uh... No, it wasn't Edomites. It was Ammonites, Moabites. I don't know. It's right there near the Jeremiah. uh, Where he got killed. We won't have time to... Won't have a meeting to go do that. See, they burned the house.
Judah carried away captive. Where does it say here about Gedaliah? Well, I don't know if my eye's going to find it in time or not. I don't want to take too much time with it. But anyway, he was he was killed, and uh, it's been kept, and it's in the Bible in Zechariah as one of the fasts of the months that God indicates there that we should be keeping, and we have been. But he was killed, and that's mainly what the day was about. Now, I believe that Herbert Armstrong was also murdered. It says there in Isaiah 1, there were liars and thieves and now murderers. And uh, I do believe that he was probably killed. There were a lot of circumstances involved there, uh, and the guards and various ones reported there was a big fight that night that he died. So anyway, uh, I can show you at least three good scriptures that show that our president will likely be killed. I'm not saying whether it will be Trump or the next one, but uh, Trump may very well be the last one. And it shows that our leader, our king, is killed in Micah, Isaiah about seven, and uh, in Hosea. I've turned to those before, and it even appears that maybe the president and the vice president both will die. So we shall see how that works out. But the reason I mention that is because all these things were kept and mentioned in the book of Zechariah because Zechariah is an end-time book. And if Herbert Armstrong was killed and he was a minor type of the two witnesses, uh, then he needed to die that way. And it is almost apparent as well that Garner Ted Armstrong was more or less killed. Uh, at the hands of the doctors who gave him the wrong medication or too much from the reports I heard. And it, he was in the hospital with the, with pneumonia, I guess. And they gave him a wrong dosage and it killed him. So whether that was outright murder or not, I don't know. But he apparently died by doctor. So both, both leaders of Worldwide Church of God were apparently killed. And there's indication that the two leaders of the United States... Uh, Ephraim will also be killed. And then, of course, we know very clearly from Revelation 11 that the two witnesses at the end, the leaders of God's work at the end, will also be killed. So that makes the killing of Gedaliah uh, pretty significant. And us fasting on those days, knowing what is coming and being prepared for everything that has and will happen here at the end time, is pretty important. Uh, if our two primary leaders of physical Israel today are killed, it will create great chaos in this nation. And uh, I think that the Scripture pretty plainly shows that that is going to happen. So let's, uh, let's approach Tuesday with that in mind, knowing that there is great meaning there, not just for, the, for history, but for the future. And then, of course, uh, we have atonement coming up just, a, what, two days later, I think it is. It's on the 8th of October. Okay, let's get back to Genesis here for a, a little bit. Uh, there's someone back here that is mentioned and mentioned later in the Bible that I want to spend a little bit of time with because I don't think 
maybe this has been put together in a way to understand what was going on, but I think I said last week that regarding the work or the works of God, uh, He created the heavens and the earth as we now know them, or recreated them as we now know them. And He did that of and by Himself with His Son. And almost everything we find that God does thereafter, He used men. Now, that doesn't mean that men have taken the place of God. Some have tried, and that doesn't work. But God does use human instruments. And we can see that all through the Bible, that if He does a work, He generally employs the use of men to do a part of that work in some ways insignificant as compared to what He does. But still in all, He uses men. And that's something that he expects us to get used to and to respect what he is doing through men because that's the way he's chosen to do it. Now, we go back to Genesis 5, and we pick up the story here of the genealogy from Adam down through Noah in chapter 5. People were living into their 900s. Uh, We find in verse 18 that Jared lived 162 years, and he begat Enoch. And we find often that people didn't really even start having kids till they were over 100 years old, uh, living that long. Anyway, Jared lived, after he begat Enoch, 800 years and begat sons and daughters, and all his days were 962. Now, the object of my uh, approach here is verse 21, Enoch lived 65 years and begat Methuselah. So he started a little earlier than some of them. 65 years, and then Methuselah was the oldest man who lived prior to the flood. But it says something about Enoch here that it doesn't say after the others. The rest of it's basically just straight genealogy. But he adds some things about Enoch. Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. So 65 when he uh, begat Methuselah, and then he lived another 300. And it says in verse 23, All the days of Enoch were 365 years. Now people will tell you that um, Enoch was taken away uh, and then went to heaven. Well, the New Testament in Acts clearly says that no one's gone except he which came down, and not even David has gone to heaven. But they use verse 24, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, I take that to mean that God caused Enoch to die. He took him away from life. Now, isn't that interesting? Because... All these other people were living into the 900s, and the only one that's mentioned as being righteous was one who had his life cut short by about two-thirds from the others. And even his son who lived after him was the longest-lived of all men. Methuselah lived 187 years and begat Lamech, and Methuselah then lived 
another 782 years, and all his days were 969. That's the oldest man, apparently, that's ever lived on the earth, 969 years. I see a couple of you out here that keep talking about how old you are. Uh, you ain't even begun. Uh, he lived, those people back there lived nine times longer than any of you have. So, in today's world, of course, uh, 90's getting pretty old. But back then, you hadn't even really, most of the time, started having kids yet. But it's interesting that Enoch walked with God. What does that mean? There aren't too many clues in the Bible, but I want to go back to Jude. And we can pick up a little bit about what Enoch did and what he taught. This is very important because it's the first work of God that is mentioned where God worked through a man to do a work. Uh, Adam didn't really do a work. <laughs> he and Eve worked a little bit in the garden, I guess. Uh, and then after they sinned, there's not much mentioned about anything good they did, if anything. Let's get a, just a brief summary of the book of Jude here. Jude, the servant of Emmanuel and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Christ and called. So he's writing to a people that were in contact with Christ when he was here and who were called. We're going to talk about called and called and, and call, called and calling uh, in the future here, but uh, just as mentioning in passing. So he wrote in verse 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write to you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write to you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. God gave doctrine to the apostles, and he gave it even before that to the apostles and prophets, as we're going to see here in a moment. They had good doctrine, and it was once delivered way back to the saints, we'll see. And then it was re-delivered by Christ when he was here on the earth under different circumstances. But we're to earnestly contend for all those things that God has revealed throughout history to the prophets, which were written in the Bible. And I'm going to show you that started in the Old Testament with the work of Enoch. I've never put this really together before, just a comment down here about Enoch, but I, I didn't see the clarity of what he did. So, James is saying, or Jude is saying, that we have to work hard or earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Now, here in the end time, Herbert Armstrong began to learn some of those things that were given to the saints of old. He studied the Scriptures, the Old Testament, and the New. And in so doing, he learned true doctrines. He didn't learn all of them, but he learned some. And he earnestly contended for those. And when he learned them, he seriously taught them. 
the Sabbath, the holy days, uh, the fact that we don't have an immortal soul, and then understanding why we were born, the mystery of the ages to become God. He worked hard at learning those things and found them in the Bible. Now, some would say, when Jude says this, we are to earnestly contend only for those things learned by Herbert Armstrong. Jerry Fleury is one who came up with, or has, or I don't know where he got them or whether he discovered it himself, but anyway, he says that Herbert Armstrong restored 37 doctrines. And those are what we're supposed to follow because those are the ones that were delivered to him. Was that where it stops? No. Where did he get it? He got it out of the Bible. Did he get it all out of the Bible? I think you and I have learned since then that there are a lot of things he never understood or knew. So when it says earnestly contend for that which was once delivered to the saints... Jude is referring from his time in history. You and I didn't exist, and neither did Herbert Armstrong or the end time. This was right after Christ died and was resurrected. And he says, those things which were earnestly uh, contend for those things delivered to the saints. So he's referring to way back from him, okay? There are certain men crept in, unaware, people didn't see them coming, blindsided, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of God to lawlessness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Father and the Son existed before man did. And he is looking back and saying that way back there were people who crept in unawares and turned the law of God into lawlessness. Even at Sinai, the law was given to Moses. He came down to deliver it, and they had understood the law. Cain knew it was wrong to kill his brother, you know? They knew about sacrifices, didn't they? Because Cain and Abel were both sacrificing. We could go on and on finding things in Genesis that they were doing. And while Moses was on the mountain getting the ten codified laws written in stone, they were down making a golden calf and dancing and committing adultery and fornication. And that was clearly against the law. So when Moses came down, he threw the stones on the ground and broke them because they were breaking the law of God, which they knew was the law of God. It just hadn't been delivered set in stone yet. But they turned it into lawlessness or lasciviousness. And then he went up and got a new set, and they denied them. So this goes all the way back. So what Jude is doing is giving us a history lesson here, and he's projecting it into the future, as we'll see here in a moment. So he says, I put you in remembrance, though you once knew this. 
how that the Eternal, having saved the people out of the land of Mitzrayim, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And he takes it all the way back. The angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness to the judgment of the great day. Now, Peter speaks of that time when Christ went back and preached to the demons in prison when the ark was preparing. And we'll get to that in a little bit. He went back then, and Jude is going all the way back to Noah in what he's saying here. And saying, you need to remember those things clear back then. Because what I'm seeing today that I'm writing to you about is exactly what was happening then. That's his point. And then he uses Sodom and Gomorrah and how they were destroyed because of breaking God, his rules. Verse 8, Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignitaries. Now he's referring to his time, not to the past, but to people who were in the church who were dreaming great dreams about how wonderful and great teachers they would be or should be, uh, defiling their flesh in various ways, and hate government, and speak evil of those whom God had put in government. Paul spoke of his enemies, Alexander the coppersmith and others, who had become enemies. So, he says, you're going to have people who exalt themselves while they defile their own flesh, Lie, cheat, steal, adulterate, fornicate, and so on. And hate government and those who are in a place of rule or government. Do we have those today? Have we had those in the church? We saw it happening back in the 70s in the ministry and worldwide even back then. And it's happened throughout the church now nearly everywhere. And then he says, but Michael, the archangel... He says, look, Michael, the archangel, one of the three cherubs, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring him a railing accusation, but said, the eternal rebuke you. Now, Michael, Gabriel, and Satan, at one time, were equal pretty much in power. And you have that situation in Daniel where God sent a message to Daniel and it took three weeks to get there because an archangel got in the way. I mean, Satan got in the way of the archangel who was to deliver the message. And it took him 21 days with poor old Daniel down there fasting for the message to get through. So since they were of equal rank and power... And because Michael still respected God in offices that God had given, he didn't rail against Satan. Now, he had every reason to, if you will, did he not? In that Satan had rebelled against God, had become the destroyer, was the accuser of the other angels, and became the accuser of the brethren once we had some. So he had done everything wrong in rebellion against God and tried to destroy the kingdom of God and take over the throne. 
So Michael had every reason if he had, I mean, he had all the facts. And he could have used those facts on Satan. But he respected the office God had given Satan to the point he would not rail against him, but said, the, uh, the eternal rebuke you. He called on a greater power in disputing with him over the body of Moses and in getting the message through to Daniel. So where do we get off by despising anyone that God has put in an office? How do we do that? Because it's, it's the examples he's using that not even Michael would do that to Satan. Now there are people who have tried to talk to Satan and the demons and tried to uh, tried to defeat them just themselves. Remember the case where uh, Christ said that they tried to put Satan out and Satan came back and attacked them strongly and they couldn't do it? We are so weak by comparison to Satan and his demons that there is no comparison. I remember having to fight either Satan or some demons off one time where I was... I hadn't gone to bed. I was laying in on the couch by the fire. We're in California. And uh, I dozed off. And when I woke up, I could not move a muscle. Couldn't move anything. Absolutely could not move. The only thing that was working was my mind. And I began to pray. And I asked God to rebuke Satan or the demons because I immediately knew they were trying to take me over. They were trying to take over my mind. So I, there was a real wrestle there. They'd already taken over the body. I couldn't move it. And they were trying to take over my mind. So I rebuked them in the name of Christ. Because I was helpless on my own. That's my point. I had to call on the name of one that they fear. And it took a while. I don't know how long, but I prayed very, very fervently for a bit. And they left and never came back. But Satan tried to take over my mind right there. And by the grace of God, he was not able to. So don't think you can defeat Satan or the demons yourself. Your only power is Christ, and it's a good thing it's there, because you can say the eternal rebuke you, Satan. And that name they fear. Remember that, that case back there? Satan said, who are you? James, Peter, and Paul, I know. But who are you guys? <laughs> because James, Peter, and Paul, or which, whichever one's he named, maybe it was John, had the Spirit of God and could call on the name of God. So they had a reservoir of power there to call on that those other men did not have. And they got shook up. So we better be very, very careful speaking evil of anyone God has put in an office. But these speak evil of those things which they know not. They think they know, but they don't know. But what they know naturally is brute beasts, and those things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them. Now we're going to see here in a moment that this is talking about people in the church that Enoch spoke of 
as a prophet. That's why I'm going through this. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, who killed his brother and defiled uh, the offerings and all the things that Cain did, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam. Balaam was about money, and they were about money. I've seen people today who lie and steal and withhold money who are following the way of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. And God is going to destroy them by the sword and by famine, the rebellious of Anathoth, the same way. He says how he's going to do it, not exactly like Korah, but as a result of what they've done. Now, these are spots in your feasts of love. They feasted with us. They've gone to God to worship with us. But they're spots. When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, thinking that what they're doing is okay and God's on their side, clouds they are without water. Cloud doesn't go, you do you much good if it doesn't drop rain. Carried about of winds, false doctrines, keeping the day, holy days on the wrong times. Trees whose fruit withers, withers up, dies, no good, not worth eating. Without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. That means they're in danger not only of physical death, but eternal death. Twice dead. Appointed all men once to die, and some will die twice. Plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame. And then he translates it, I think, to even the demons here. They're like demons who will be in blackness forever. Not alive, but dead. Not like the demons. Now he brings in Enoch. With this background, he brings in Enoch. Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, we just saw the genealogy, prophesied of these. Now, he's beginning to tell you here what what Enoch said, what he preached, how he walked with God and was used of God to preach. He was called to preach to people in the days of Noah. Now, God does not do things without warning through His servants, the prophets. So when Noah started doing what Noah did, the people of the earth had already been warned by Enoch. He prophesied of these. These what? These people we've been reading about right here. He prophesied of what would occur in Moses' day, in Sodom and Gomorrah, in the early New Testament church that Jude himself was involved with, and at the end time where you and I are today. Enoch was a prophet of God who prophesied, Scripture says. Now, let's drill that in. He prophesied of these saying... Here is Enoch's message. Here's what he said. Behold, the Eternal comes with ten thousands of his saints. How many of the saints is Christ going to come with 
when he brings them back to this earth after the wedding. Revelation 7 and 14, tens of thousands, that is 144,000. That's tens of thousands. It's not hundreds of thousands or millions. It's tens of thousands. 144,000 is tens of thousands. So that tells me that Enoch understood the plan of salvation. He understood that Christ will come back with tens of thousands. Revelation indicates exactly 144,000. So he understood Christ was coming back with the saints. And he knew how many. So Enoch was prophesying clear back before Noah of things that would have happened that you and I sitting here today still have not seen happen. So his prophecy encompassed from the time he preached it through Noah's work and through the work of the two witnesses in the end. And not only that, even a year beyond that, when Christ returns with his bride and brings the new Jerusalem down a year later. So Enoch understood the plan of salvation. Did you ever notice that before? I hadn't. I just, I'd I'd read over it, and I, I used that in that series on how exclusive is the church to show that it would be tens of thousands, but I don't think I got really the message of what Enoch was preaching. Now, he goes on. He makes that statement showing he knew the plan of salvation. He says to execute judgment on all. Well, what's Christ going to do? Execute judgment on all. He hasn't done it yet. He didn't do it when he was here walking the earth as a human, but he's about to. And to convict all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed. So Christ is coming back to execute judgment against all the ungodly. And of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So he's going to put down all people who have been against him in any way. That even includes people who consider themselves Christians because they have denied him. They have turned his law into lasciviousness and said it's done away with. So that's denying him. If you deny his law, you deny him and have spoken against him. These are murmurers. So here's the type of people they become. These are murmurers complainers walking after their own lusts and their mouth speaking great swelling words having men's persons and admiration because of the advantage of people sucking up to them gives them. So he says this is the kind of people that are going to exist at the end when Christ comes to put it down. But beloved, remember you the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Emmanuel. How that they told you there would be mockers of the last time who would walk after their own ungodly lusts. Those who separate themselves. Separate themselves out from the people of God would come in the end. Sensual, having not the Spirit. 
God does not divide His Spirit up into a lot of different groups and peoples. He scattered those who had some of His Spirit, and He is going to gather those who still have His Spirit, those who have the sense to get oil from those who have it. But you, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of Christ to eternal life. Some you have to have compassion on and make a difference because they're struggling but weak. And others are rebellious in nature, and you have to say with them with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Well, there is the message of Enoch. There is the first message delivered by a man from God. And it encompasses from his day and those who would be destroyed then until the present day and beyond. And encompasses everything in between. Because those things occurred over and over and over again. The same thing that Jude drills in that Enoch covered. Now, we don't read much about Enoch's message in the Bible except that which is given to us by Jude, do we? But he gives us an awful lot if you stop and read it and pay attention to what he's saying. So the prophets of God began back then, and he was, in that sense, I guess, the first saint to whom these things were delivered, and we are exhorted to contend for these things. Well, Jude reminded us, think about Korah, think about Sodom and Gomorrah, think about uh, all these things that occurred and about the demons who rebelled. Be aware of those things and guard against letting yourself become what they became. So it goes on down, and verse 28 in Genesis 5 It says, Lamech lived 182 years and begat a son, and he called his name Noah. Now, Enoch and Noah are the only ones that much is said about here, because God is going to use Noah for a very, very great work that ties in right here in the end time, as we shall see. He called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us, concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Eternal has cursed. Now we know that God cursed the ground and cursed Adam and Eve, and that curse had remained, the curse of the earth. Now we still see vestiges of that, but I think based on this statement, it was much, much worse before the flood than after the flood. A lot of those things that God had put on His curses were removed by the floodwaters and were not as bad thereafter. You still have things that stick and pinch and bite and claw uh, and so on, but apparently not as bad as it was then. Because He says, Noah will comfort us concerning the work that we do to make a living. Now we'll go on. How did Noah 
become a blessing instead of a cursing to them. Lamech lived after he begat Noah 595 years and begat sons and daughters, and all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. Now, this next statement is interesting because it isn't left by itself. Verse 32. Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, it doesn't say here how long Noah lived. Uh, it does later. It doesn't say because Noah was going to interrupt everything that was going on. Noah had a job to do, which we're going to read about shortly. But notice, he was 500 years old when he begat those three sons. I assume uh, that either he had three wives of three different races, or God placed within the womb of Noah's wife, through the begettal, all three races that came out of the flood, which you read about in Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9, on, on through, well, I guess mainly 9. But notice he was 500 years old when they were begotten. And then it goes through and shows that wickedness uh, dominated the earth. Terrible violence, all kinds of so on. And God says in verse 3, The Eternal said, My spirit shall not always strive with men, for he is flesh, and his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. So he makes a decree right here that from nine hundred plus years, after what he's about to do, men will only live about a hundred and twenty years. Now we know since then, that he shortened it to about 70. Uh, they did live up to 250 for a little while there and so on uh, when it got reduced from uh, 900 down to to 120. Uh, there were some who lived longer, and then he reduced it to 70, and there's some who live 80, 90, even 100, and even a little beyond 100. But generally, 70 is the common denominator. And then there were giants on the earth in those days. Uh, we've, there have been skeletons of giants discovered right here in this area. Uh, northern Nevada, uh, they've discovered skeletons there, eight, nine, ten feet tall. Red-haired skeletons. Uh, you can go back into the early newspapers of Nevada, and they tell stories about them. Uh, and they were in the museums. And then they were removed. Uh, now some of them are still in the back end of the museum, as I read recently. Uh, but they don't show them to the public unless you specifically ask. Because they don't want people to know that there were giants living here. But this is where they find giants. I don't think they found any giant skeletons from what I read some time back in the Middle East at all. They haven't found any. So where were those giant Philistines and giant Israelites and giants? They were here. That's where they're finding skeletons. They found a skull with two rows of teeth from a very, very large man right out here in Johnson Canyon back about the 1950s and 60s through then. 
uh, I know of one person who took one of those skulls with a double row of teeth, like those in northern Nevada were, to an archaeologist in St. George, Utah, and it was never heard of again. I mean, an eyewitness who found it himself and took it to the archaeologist, and it disappeared. So, there were giants on the earth and here <laughs> in those days. And they sinned. Uh, people think that they cohabited, that angels or demons cohabited with people to get giants. But uh, I don't believe that for a moment. Christ said that uh, the demons aren't given in marriage. They are apparently cap incapable of reproducing. So they couldn't impregnate women. But there were giant men who did it and became mighty men. So verse 5, Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart, man's heart, was only evil continually. And it repented the eternal that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. God was very sad at what had happened to man. And he says, I'm going to destroy them. And he found in his heart and mind that he was going to re destroy them all. He said, I'm just going to give it up. I've had it with them. No more. But Noah kind of got in the way of that. Now, Enoch had prophesied of these things and how they would be. Not only then, but in later times until Christ returns with his saints. But he was dead by now. He only lived 365 years. I find that a very interesting number. We now have a 365-day year, do we not? Back then, it was a 360-day year, as we can prove from actually the story of Noah. It was a 360-day year in his days. I don't know that I'll take time to reprove that, but we've been through it before. That 150 days were exactly five months. And you can't have that on the present 365-day calendar. But Enoch was prophesying of what? He was prophesying of the things that would happen through history down through the end times. And ironically, he lived 365 years, and we have a 365-year day down here in the end when all the evil that is occurring today is occurring. God could have taken him at age 364 or 366. Why did he take him at 365? And then we read that Jude says that he was prophesying of the end time. His very life and the length of it may have showed that he was prophesying of a time later on when there would be a 365-day year. And that is going to be changed again, back to 360, probably, if not before, at least by the time the Great Tribulation starts, because it lasts three and a half years according to a 360-day year. 1260 days, uh, 1260 days, three and a half years, or 42 months. You cannot have all three of those unless you have a 360-day year. So God's going to change it back to 360 from 365. 
But I think that God was making a statement with Enoch's life that his prophecies would go on down through a 365-day year here at the end. And then it gets changed. Now, verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Eternal. So he paused and says, well, maybe I won't destroy them all after all. At least there's somebody who will respect and love me. Somebody. Just one. His sons were not born yet. They weren't obeying God. Just Noah. We're going to see that right now. These are the generations of Noah. He was a just man and perfect or mature in his generations. Noah walked with God, just as Enoch had walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Interesting that he says in verse 32 of chapter 5, he was 500 years old when they were begotten. Now, he doesn't leave that there. He comes forward to the time that he is going to destroy mankind. He's made up his mind. I'm going to destroy them. But Noah, I give grace to. And then it says, he begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So what that is telling us was not only was he 500 years old when he begot them, but they were begotten at the same time that God gave Noah his commission. He's giving him his commission right here. And the previous verse, of verse 32, says he was 500 years old when that occurred. Now, this is important. Because we're going to find that when the floodwaters subsided, that life was to begin anew. He was 600 years old. So his entire work lasted from the time he was 500 until the time he was 600. Exactly 100 years. Now before we're done, we're going to tie that in with the end time and see how it perfectly fits what is going on right now and has been since 1926 and 27. It'll be a hundred years, unless it's cut short. Okay, he begat three sons, and at that time the earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on it, and it was corrupt, and all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth, except for Noah. So this is the juncture at which he spoke to Noah, when he begat those three sons, and we know he was 500 years old. God said to Noah, He gives him a commission here. The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So he gives Noah some prophetic material here. Enoch had already preached that because of wickedness, God would destroy mankind and brought it clear down to the end-time destruction. Now, Enoch died. Time went on. God 
came to the first time that he had in mind to destroy man. And he gave Noah a prophetic message. Noah, after that one statement, could go out and tell people, God is going to destroy mankind. You better straighten up or you are going to be destroyed. Isn't that the message of all the prophets from Enoch through the two witnesses? All of them in between. If you don't straighten up, you will be destroyed. So he gave the same message to Noah that he had given to Enoch. And Noah was to preach it to his generation. I will destroy them with the earth. Then he gives him a specific commission of what he was to do, now that he had knowledge of what was going to occur. Make you an ark of gopher wood, room shall you make, pitch it within and without. And then he gives him (coughs) the details, which we don't necessarily need at the moment. Verse 17, I'm going to destroy all flesh that breathes the breath of life. Fish don't breathe the breath of life, they take oxygen out of the water with their gills. Uh, but of, of flesh or beasts, everything that is in the earth shall die. But with you will I establish my covenant, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Now, they didn't have any yet. They had just been begotten when this message is being given. So, like Abraham, God is telling Noah... You're going to have sons, and they're going to have wives, and I want you to take them all into the ark. So he was not only prophesying of what was going to happen to man, he also prophesied to Adam, I mean to Noah, what was going to happen to Noah. Now, I had always kind of thought that, well, he was told to build the ark, and at least he had his three sons to help him build it. Not right away, he didn't. Because he begat them when he was 500, and he got this message when he was 500. So they were born after this message was given, apparently. And then they had to grow up before old dad got any help. (laughs) I don't know when he put them to work, probably when they were pretty young. But uh, they weren't there when this was given. So he told him, you're going to have these sons and, and your wife... And your sons will grow up and have wives. So he's telling them, this is still down the road. You've got some time. God did not intend to destroy all mankind a week after he gave Noah the message. He had to have time to preach it and prophesy it. He had to have time to finish a work that he was given to do. Part of his work was prophesying of man's demise. Part of his work was building a way for some to be saved out of it. The ark was the first refuge, if you will. Now, God has done that since, has he not? Did he not protect Israel? Is he not saying that we're going to go to Zion and be protected here at the end? Would he not be having someone Say that ahead of time? Huh? He always has. So part of what Noah was preaching was, you're all going to die, 
And whoever goes on this boat I'm building will be saved. Now, you better get your ducks lined up if you want to be saved. Otherwise, you're going to drown. Pretty powerful message. But you know what? It took longer than people thought. It took longer than Noah thought. Perhaps. I don't know how much detail God gave him. But he did tell him, your sons are going to have wives and they're to go on this boat with you. So he told him, at least it's going to be a long work. Didn't Jeremiah say, when you're taken into captivity in Babylon, go ahead and build houses. It's going to be a long captivity, 70 years. And there's another guy that raised up and says, oh, no, it's not going to be a long captivity. It's going to be a short one. Don't build houses. Jeremiah, that guy died. And then Jeremiah said, it's going to be a long work. Build houses. And that's why I equate with Herbert Armstrong in 1947 saying, there's a long work ahead. I'm going to send the ministry out to build houses, spiritual houses, churches, and even physical houses, because it's going to be a long work. And then it turned into 70 before it basically disappeared. So this was going to be a long work. And people would throw rocks and tell Noah, oh yeah, right, you're going to build a boat, we're all going to drown. Boy, it's taking you a long time to build that boat. And they began to laugh and scoff and scorn him, I am quite sure, and say, oh yeah, God's going to do this? Well, when's it going to happen? If it's too long, people give up. People will not stay the course. Why did Christ say, he who endures to the end shall be saved? And none of these people endured that hundred years that the ark was being built and then ridden in. So I'm going to bring this on all flesh. Now, let me get to uh, some numbers here a little bit. Um, let's go to chapter 7 here. It talks about the animals and so on that will come in, but that's not what I want. Uh, chapter 7, verse 6, or verse 5, Noah did according to all that the Eternal commanded. Built it the right way, got the animals in there and so on. And Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. So... He got his commission when he was 500, same time his children were begat, begotten. And 100 years later, he was on the boat. He did not miss the boat, but everybody else did except his family. Noah went in, his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him into the ark, just as God had prophesied. Happened just like God said it would. And then the clean beasts and so on. Then it was opened up and it rained and rained and rained and so on. Now, uh, chapter 8, verse 4. Uh, and the ark rested in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat. I don't see yet what the seventh month, seventeenth day of the month could mean. Now, if you look at the Feast of Tabernacles, seventh month is when the fall uh, festivals begin with trumpets on the first day of the new moon. And the 17th day of the month would be, let's see, 15, 16, be the third day of the Feast of Tabernacles. 
Uh, does that tie in some way? I, I don't know yet, but I wouldn't for a moment doubt that it might. Uh, because God doesn't do anything without specific timing, and He's right on time with everything He does. So they uh, decreased till the tenth month, and the tops of the mountains were seen on the first day of the tenth month. And then uh, He was told to open the convertible top. Forty days later, He opened the window and sent forth a raven and so on, you know the story, and then the dove, and so on. Now, 8.13 gives us a little more. And it came to pass, in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the... 27th day of the month was the earth dried. Now, these days may have significance. I see one in verse 13 already. 601st year. So it was 600 preparing, and while they were on the ark, it turned into the 601st year. In the first month, the first day of the month, 1-1, if you will. The waters were dried, and you could see out, and you could see what? A new beginning. You could look out and see dry ground instead of water. You could see that here was a new opportunity after a hundred years in the 601st year, first day of the first month. What does God tell us in Joel? I will bless you in the first month. I'll give you the former and latter rains in the first month. What had had Noah gone through? Rain. Gone through lots of rain. And the rain had prevented. The rain at that point was a curse to everyone on the earth except those who were in a place of refuge on the boat. Now, did they look upon a new life in the first year, 601st year, first month, first day of that year? Is the end time going to be a hundred years long before God intervenes and offers new life? Let's look at that just for a moment here. We may hit it some more later, but I'm sure we will. 26... 27 A.D., Christ began to prepare for and begin His ministry, right? And it ended in 31 A.D. with His death, three and a half years later. Exactly 1,900 years ago, as Herbert Armstrong attested, God began to show Him and prepare Him for His ministry. In 1926 and 27 is when he was prepared to begin his ministry and indeed began some fate uh, teachings, even to his wife and a few others around. Uh, but exactly 1,900 years later, he was given the truth which had been basically lost. 
And God was preparing him for a commission of preaching and calling people. Exactly 1,900 years later. Now, 70 years after that, no, wait a minute. No, 100 years after that, God began to reveal knowledge in 1996 and 1997, which you are now aware of, 100 years later, which gave us new life, which gave us a new opportunity, an opportunity to serve God, was when that information began to come. In the first month of 1996, and the work actually began on the first day of January of 1996. God often has used in the end time January as the first month, even though technically his year begins uh, in the, what we call the fourth month or April. But that's the first month of God's calendar. But he's used, God, he's used man's calendar a great deal. Most of the events, good and bad, that happened to Worldwide Church of God that are notable occurred in January. And most of the events to the beginning of this work out here at Anatoth occurred in January. The dividing of the land, for instance, happened in January of 2003. So exactly a hundred years from 19... No, no, I'm, no. What am I saying? Seventy years. Seventy years, from 1926 to 1996. And if Christ returns in 26, that's exactly 2,000 years. 1,900 years from the time Herbert Arm- I mean Christ to Herbert Armstrong, and 100 years from Herbert Armstrong to Christ's return. 26, 1926, 2026. Two days. And he will revive his work in the third day. Well, two days, a thousand years being as a day from Christ beginning his ministry in 26 and 27 to the time that he began to warn the world 1900 years later. And that message will have gone out from Herbert Armstrong and others for 100 years. And then Christ will return. And then he will bring his bride back a year later in 1927. I mean, 2027, it does appear. And a new life will begin as it did in the 601st year of Noah. Now, what did Christ say? that it would be in the days, as in the days of Noah, Matthew 24. You're going to see here an expansion of the importance of what Noah did back there, not only for then, but for now. Matthew 24, he's talking here about how uh, bad things are going to get, the gospel will be preached, and then the end will come, and woe to them that give suck, and so on. Verse 21, for when that is done, 
There will be great tribulation, such was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, or ever shall be. If anything, it will be worse than it was in the days of Enoch and Noah. And there will be no flesh saved alive, except it be cut short. Now, what happened in the days of Noah? There would have been no flesh saved alive, except God provided a place of refuge for Noah and his family. And he's going to provide a place of refuge again because it is not possible to deceive the very elect, but it's very, very close to possible. And then he says, After the tribulation comes the day of the Lord, in verse 29 and 30. Uh, And he says in verse 34, Then, I say to you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Which generation? The generation at the end, at the time when the gospel is preached, at the time when there will be old men to see the temple, the generation that God called here at the end will not pass out or not be gone before this happens. Now, if you put those numbers together, and Herbert Armstrong began in 1926 and 27, a hundred years later, there would not be many people left. But most of those who were called were called in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and maybe 80s. And they would have been old enough to compare... Worldwide Church of God with the latter temple, which will be forming very shortly. And they would be living long enough to see that and live on to the end. So, anybody that was an adult when Herbert Armstrong called is long since dead. But those who were called under him, there are quite a few still alive. But many have died. And this thing's got to come pretty soon, or anybody that was old enough to see worldwide at its best condition, which was probably in the mid-60s, they'll be dead pretty soon. So all this ties together. Uh, Verse 36, Of that day and hour knows no man, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. doesn't say, as we've said for a long time, you won't know the year, you won't know the day or the hour. But I think... If you put these numbers together, the years become pretty clear. (coughs) But then he goes on to say, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, went on about their business, in other words, until the day that Noah entered the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. You see today people going on about their business. They've got their job. They've got their hobby. They've got their family. They've got their TV. They've got their cell phone. That's their world. They don't know that the world is about to break out in World War III. You couldn't find, I don't think, 10,000 Americans who understand that this nation is about to be completely destroyed and less than 10% alive. 
even those who are in the prepper community, who are preparing for a great crash and the problems that they see coming, and they are coming, and they do see them, but they don't know that we're Israel, they don't know we're Ephraim, they don't know all those prophecies and how they apply to this nation, and therefore they're saying, if you'll get enough food and water stored up and enough ammunition to last you for six months or three years, you'll survive. Everybody else is going to be out there fighting for scraps of food and die. So they see that far. But they don't see Ezekiel 5. They don't see that a third will die of famine and pestilence, a third by the sword, and a third be taken captive, and then a sword sent after them. They don't see the whole picture at all. They don't see the coming of Christ. Well, some of them think He's going to come rapture them away about the time things get bad. But that's all they understand, and they don't understand that. So he says it'll be just like it was in Noah. He built on the ark. He spent a hundred years doing that. And they all said, ah, Noah's crazy. That guy's nuts. He's been out in the sun too much. And they went on about life, and they were blissfully unaware until it started raining. And then when it got about waist deep, I think they began to get a little worried. And then they started climbing mountains. They knew not till the flood claim came, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. You know what they're going to do? <clears throat> they're going to destroy, destroy America. There's a coalition being formed right now to do that. It's already in the works. It's all set up. Got... Russian and Chinese troops gathering all through South and Central America. Got them right here in this nation. I've seen some of them. We got UN uh, ambulances and war machines stockpiled in various places around this country. I've seen pictures of them. It's all being prepared ahead of time to destroy this nation. It's going to happen, but they're not going to know it. And you know what's going to happen then? The U.S. dollar is going to be destroyed when the stock market goes to nothing and everything is worthless, including gold and silver that the preppers are getting. It might tide you over for a little while. I don't know. It might be of some use for a bit because paper dollars aren't going to be worth anything. So maybe for a short while, I don't know. Uh, but nonetheless, they don't grasp that it's going to total destruction. <coughs> And then what? A Savior comes on the scene. And they won't, they'll think then, ah, oh, the trouble's over. Now we have this great prophet who has come, and this military might that has come, and they've done signs and wonders in the heavens, and this must be Jesus. And he's come to save the world, and now we're going to have the millennium. And if you'll take this little chip in your forehead and in your hand, and they're already introducing those. Some people are wearing them already. Uh, they're little by little getting people used to it. Cryptocurrency, trying to convince them that they don't need dollars anymore, but they can have these digital cryptos on the computer, and that works just fine. They're preparing everybody to accept 
where only you have to swipe your hand or pass your head. I mean, they've already got it now where you don't even have to run your card through the machine when you buy. You can just wave it over it now. So it's still in the cards, not in your wrist. But how long now before they put it in your wrist? Because they're already doing it in some places in Europe. Sweden for one, I think. So people will be convinced that this new financial system is going to work. And if I get involved in it, I can eat. And if I don't, I starve. And then they're going to forget all about what it says in the book of Revelation, that if you accept that mark, you're going to eternal death. Or, well, not eternal, but you're going to die. Because they'll have their chance in the second resurrection. But they'll be convinced. And they don't want to die now. So, okay, that's the way I eat. So I'll accept it. The whole world will take it. And they'll think that the kingdom of God is on earth and everything is hunky-dory until Christ intervenes and returns and starts the seven last plagues. And then they're going to realize mankind and Satan did not set up the kingdom of God, but everything is being destroyed in the seven last plagues while the bride is being given her new commission at the throne of God to come down and rule the earth. God will work through people who have been people who will then be God. So he says it's going to be just like that. They're going to think everything's hunky-dory. We'll work it all out. The Democrats will save us, <laughs> whoever, and, uh, and we'll be okay. And then sudden destruction. Because they're not going to get the message when this nation is destroyed and World War III comes. Because they'll have a new Savior. A Muslim Savior, Christian Savior... Catholic Savior, Shintoist Savior, all combined as one. They'll think that the problem is solved. But there's going to be two hornets running about the world telling that it's not all solved. And that they're going to die. Just like Enoch told them. And just like Noah told them. And they're going to hate them with a passion because they're going to think that the kingdom of God has been set up. And this beast and false prophet are the answer. And here you're going to have a couple of people running around telling them, no, there's a place of refuge in Zion, and those people have everything they need, and if you'll just obey God, then you'll be saved out of everything that's happened and about to happen. Because they're going to be told that the beast and the false prophet are false. And that the seven last plagues coming. And if you're going to avoid that, you better repent now. It'll be a warning message. Repent so you can be saved out of this. But they'll hate them. And they'll rejoice when they're destroyed. That's what's coming. Now, I think that there's a message there from Noah... Not just of violence, not just of sin, not just of need to repent, but I think the very timing of how long it lasted was also what Christ was referring to here, just as in the days of Noah. Not just the message of sin, 
but a reenactment in the end time of the hundred years. From the time he called the end time first messenger in 1926 until Christ returns 100 years later and offers his bride in the 600 first year peace and safety and marriage and eternal life. And then shortly thereafter to the world, the end of the 600 year, the millennium, or however that will work out. This is the beginning of the 601st year that life was given. And God is going to give that an atonement, the beginning of the fiscal year. And then uh, a year later, people will be given, uh, well, it be 2027, the millennium would start. Well, let's drop it for right there, but I wanted us to see that the conduct in Noah's day was important, but the timing is also very, very important. And even promises us in Amos that in the first month, he will bring us the former and the latter rains. They will be a blessing to us the same way that they were to Noah. Curse to everyone else, but a blessing to us. So, Noah had more to say than you may have realized. And I think Enoch had more to say than we probably heretofore realized about what's going on right now. They were prophets of old, and we are to earnestly contend for those things once delivered to the prophets a long, long time ago. And we haven't learned it all yet. There's still much to learn.